Hi, I'm Babs Weber, and welcome to Paused at Home, an Alberta Social Innovation Connect podcast. We hope you've been enjoying the thought-provoking conversations the past few months about the big questions that are on people's mind through the COVID-19 pandemic as it relates to systems change. If the conversation sparks new thoughts for you, please share in the comments of your favorite listening platform and let us know what you think. On today's episode, we have Dr. Catherine McGowan joining us. She sits at the intersection of Professor of Social Innovation at Mount Royal University in Calgary and historian extraordinaire. This unique professional corner allows her to pull from history to help her students understand the present conditions social innovators work with today. The big question she is sitting with is, would you know if the world was collapsing around you? She shares her perspective on this question through the example of the Black Death. Here is her conversation with host Elise Martinowski. Well, thank you for being here and for taking time to record the big thoughts that you're sitting with right now. And to get started, could you please introduce yourself along with what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Dr. Catherine McGowan. I am a professor of social innovation at Mount Royal University here in Calgary. My background is in history, and so anyone who has interacted with me knows that that's sort of the lens that I take on social innovation. So not just how has transformation and change happened, but what can we pull from that to be useful in, in the present? And I hope I do that relatively well uh, for my students. We'll see. It's an open conversation. As a past student, I can say, yes, you do that very well. <laughs> oh, yeah, wonderful. Mm -hmm. So we're going to just launch into the big question that you're sitting with right now. Do you share that question and the thoughts that are around it? So when you first approached me for this, um, I was actually surprised how difficult it was for me to think about the big questions, because I think right now everything seems really big and filtering it down into something can be quite challenging. So I decided to think about something that I have been thinking about for quite some time, but has become more important in our current context. And that is, uh, would you know if the world was collapsing around you and what would you do about it? So about two years ago, a colleague of mine um, in Ontario, we were batting around this question of, um, we talk about resilience and we talk about the panarchy cycle, uh, which is a four-stage cycle to talk about how systems at any level can go through change, um, sometimes controlled and sometimes uncontrolled, and, uh, and either survive and thrive or suffer significant problems. Um, the panarchy cycle, as I said, has four stages, conservation, so that's when the system is, is sort of established, release, when it goes through some sort of un fundamental underlying change, reorganization, where it sort of debates where it's going to go, where different ideas can emerge and compete, and then finally exploitation, when one emerges as dominant and then becomes the new systems arrangement. For those of you who are interested in discussing the panarchy cycle in more detail, there are a lot of different books on it, but I would recommend Panarchy. Uh, which is available at most libraries. Um, it's a really good book, in particular, if you're interested in how social and environmental systems interact, but it can be helpful anyway. But so we were talking about the panarchy cycle because it's often applied in retrospect. So after the fact, we sort of say, okay, how does the panarchy cycle help us understand what just happened? And we wanted to actually ask if there was a way to look at a system at a moment in time where we thought something was happening and to see if people could actually understand where they were. 
Um, now, because the panarchy cycle is, depending on how you count it, 18 to 25 years old, um, it's not necessarily in common discourse. So people wouldn't say, oh, I'm in this stage of the panarchy cycle. Uh, but instead, we wanted to find a time where we had a pretty good documentation about what was actually happening um, and pretty good documentation of how people were feeling. So we decided to really make it challenging for ourselves, and we went back to the Black Death. And that was partially because of um, our own particular interests, but also because the Black Death is very well studied. And so it's easy to access hundreds of academic articles that uh, bring together research from different countries and different languages uh, over different times. So it was very helpful for us at that kind of meta level to be able to look into what this actually looked like. Now, they didn't use the word panicky. They didn't even use the word resilience. They actually didn't even use the term Black Death. That's a 19th century mistranslation. They would have called it the pestilence um, or the great death or the great dying or just what's happening today. Um, very similar to how we think about the coronavirus, <laughs> just what's happening, just the garbage of today. Um, but uh, so they we didn't use these terms, but we did know this was a cataclysmic event, especially the first arrival of the plague in Europe. And we did know that um, for the 14th century, this was pretty well documented. So we knew that um, there were authors who were writing about it, that there were chroniclers who were writing about it, and that there was quantitative sources as well. So things like rents, um, death rates, occupation of, of roles. So what that means is, was someone in, acting as a priest in that particular community? So you could really look at this in a lot of depth at that meta level and sort of ask these kind of questions by using that broad historical tradition. And what we found was um, was quite interesting. Well, it was interesting to me. Hopefully, a little bit interesting to everyone listening. Um, and that was that at the at the exact moment of the plague's arrival, there was sort of a sense that okay, the world is truly over. Like this is this is God's punishment. We are we are going to die. And you see this kind of overreaction. So you see almost a complete, in some places, abandonment of existing social norms and social structures. That meant that people sort of went crazy. I'm, I'm making light of what was a terrible situation, um, but hopefully it indicates just how much for some people, it, you know, things, things sort of up in the air. Also, when you see pogroms um, re-emerging in parts of Europe where you see attacks on the Jews, so this perception that there is this outsider who is challenging our community and bringing bad things, so we will, uh, we will sort of eliminate that. So you see this real effort at that moment in time to sort of say, oh my gosh, our system is in what we would recognize as release, and either we have to try to pull it back into conservation. So we have to introduce laws and, um, um, and social practices that try to pull it back to that sort of status quo ante. You see that really well in England in particular, or you sort of see this kind of like people are like, nope, it's collapsing. Let's just embrace it. Let's just like, let's just do everything differently. Um, we actually see the emergence of even new religious practice at this time. So particularly the flagellants who would walk from town to town, stripped naked to the waist, whipping themselves as a way of punishing themselves for the sins of that area, hopefully to appease God. Now, just like the people who are protesting wearing masks, it's a really good way to spread the plague. So, so it's probably it's probably negatively correlated with the their ultimate goal, but it was sort of a new social practice. You hadn't really seen that kind of activity on mass. In other places, as I said, you saw this effort to kind of pull it back as fast as possible um, to status quo ante, so how, the way things were beforehand. England is really well documented about this. So they introduced laws that actually say you can't um, ask for more in wages, uh, you can't ask for more in prices. So if you make something, you can't 
raise the price. Um, there are laws that say you have to keep cleaning the streets. So that was how people, how city cleaning would work in the 14th century in England was that you would actually sort of re were responsible for your own little area. And then there was usually um, in the town would have sort of a system to ensure how the rivers got cleaned. It was, it varied radically town to town. Um, in places like York, for instance, they actually use a little bit of tax collecting to hire someone to go and clean out the river ooze, um, which sounds hilarious. It's just an old Saxon word for literally river. So it's river ooze is the river river. Well done English, uh, fantastic language. But so you see in England, you really see this effort to try and sort of say, nope, we have to bounce back. We have to go back to the way things were. Now, historians have debated um, at length as to how effective these rules were because supply and demand alone meant that it was simply hard to keep serfs on your property. So serfs were people who didn't actually have a lot of freedom. Um, what we would recognize now as sort of not quite slavery, but they were not free people. Um, they didn't have freedom of movement and they didn't have freedom of economic choice and certainly didn't have any political freedoms. Uh, serfs were leaving en masse because they didn't want to be serfs. They wanted to, to try something else. They wanted to uh, either try to expand their own farm holdings or to try and live somewhere else, try to look for a better master who perhaps had um, a different understanding of customs or, or simply had lower rents. And so supply and demand really did push up against this, but there's no question that English, England tried to go back to that status quo. What was also interesting though, was that in the kind of 20 years after the plague, if you look at sort of how people responded, if you take a medium term view, you see it goes, oh my gosh, the world is ending to, okay, the world didn't end, maybe we're okay to that in a 20 year period. And then it's only really over 150 years, you start to see the long-term ramifications of what the plague has wrought. So the, the undermining of certain social and, um, and cultural institutions like the church, there are many historians who actually attribute the fact that many priests abandoned their community during the Black Death as sort of the beginning of the, the sort of Protestant Reformation. Now that's, that's a bit of a stretch, it's about 180 years. But what the suggestion is, is that that undermined the um, authority of that, that group. Now there are a lot of priests who did stay and who actually died, but there were others who left and that feeling was that that contributed to anti-clerical sentiment. The Pope in particular um, kind of holed up in the, in the, um, in the, uh, the papal palace in Avignon. They weren't actually in um, Rome at the time. And so that was sort of seen as an abdication of, of duties and responsibilities. And you do see in the um, post, in that kind of post snapback period, uh, this, these periods of revolts, there's peasant revolts, especially in England, but in other places as well, where people who felt that they didn't get the benefits of that sort of shift in the economy start to demand them. Now, they're not very successful peasant revolts, but it does point to this sort of tension of dealing with those consequences. And why I think that's so interesting now is that there's a real tension between those who want to snap back or bounce back, and those who want to bounce forward. So both of which are definitions of resilience that get used in the literature and in teaching. To snap back or bounce back is to return to some sort of previously existing set of arrangements. So like economically, politically, culturally, socially. To bounce forward is usually to change some of those arrangements in, in some sort of a quantifiable way. So not simply, if you will, um, making minor adjustments, but changing something in a really deeper way that shifts resource and authority flows in a way that can be remarked upon and observed, um, that acknowledges some of the problems identified in that moment where you actually did lose resilience. 
And I worry, I really worry that the discourse is getting really tied up in the bounce back piece because a lot of us want to be, we want to go back. I mean, I want to go back to the gym. I'd love to go back to Europe. That one, that one's really hurting. Uh, I will fully admit that is a very upper middle class problem, but it is my problem and I own it. (laughs) I want to go home. I want to go back to Ontario. I want to see my parents. Um, I want to be back in the classroom, but they, those those things may not make sense. The classroom may simply not be safe for uh, for a long period of time. We may want to rethink even how we do classroom um, education. I've been able to put a lot of my lectures online, and I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's the best use of my time anymore. Um, wouldn't it make more sense to sort of have that information available for students in the class, but then use the class time to do in-depth projects or in-depth work where we can actually go deeper than just me giving material. And we can instead sort of look at that material in a dialectic. So you can have a student sort of asking those questions after they've done that work, um, more of a seminar model. But you can see in, the political and economic discourse in both our country and the country to ourselves, um, that there is this desire to bounce back because that feels safe. That feels like that feels like um, survival. And yet, the story of the Black Death reminds us that if, that that actually is a bit of a false safety, because if we haven't dealt with those consequences, that we might we're going to eventually have to pay that in the future. Um, and it may not, it may be even worse than dealing with it now. And social innovation scholars often emphasize the idea, don't waste a window of opportunity. This is a window of opportunity. And in the solutions we provide to that, we should actually embed the logic we want for an improved world. So not just how do we respond to COVID, but how do we respond to COVID in a way that reduces racial tension and racial issues? How do we respond to COVID in a way that encapsulates resilience um, and and reconciliation um, uh, or better relationships with the environment? Um, I'm not sure about about you, Elise, I know you're in Red Deer, but here I am in in a not particularly populous part of Calgary and the animals are back en masse. Prairie dogs, hawks, I saw a coyote this morning on my run, which I wasn't super excited about, but I'm sure that the the local ecology was, um, and they are an important predator. And the prairie dog uh, crop is particularly robust and and, and, uh, abundant this year. Uh, And so I I worry that we, um, we have this opportunity that we're just simply avoiding. And that because we, for such a long time, we've talked about bouncing back as an ideal, we're missing this really important lesson embedded in this. All you have to do is look at who is dying in the United States and Canada to understand that this event, just like the Black Death, is hitting on the fractures in our system. So whether it's the awful condition of many um, old folks' homes, uh, and that's not just in terms of um, specific sort of situations like elder abuse, which is of course a crime, but also the fact that so many people who work there can't make enough money to at just working at one, that they have to work at multiple places. And now we know that they, that's one of the ways that they tra- that they transported this. Secondly, you know, when it comes to elder care, we've focused a lot on keeping people alive, but we haven't thought a lot about quality of life. So you have people who are um, who are fonts of knowledge and fonts of experience who are um, who are essentially wheelchair bound with no access to the outside in meaningful ways. 
and are losing what's left of their body because it's it's just too inconvenient, I suppose. Um, this one actually really bugs me because my grandmother passed in an, in an old photo many years ago, but it was unnecessarily fast. Um, and so I think it speaks to that, that problem in our system. Similarly, now that it's now that the death rate is moving outside of those homes, we're seeing it hit people of color um, in both Canada and the United States and, and people who are poor much more hard than it is hitting people like you or I, um, partially because I don't have any underlying health conditions. I get to work one job and make enough money to support myself. So that's great. You know, I can afford a safe place to live uh, where I'm not exposed to asbestos, I hope. You know, I, I have my, as part of my work, I have access to a gym. And, you know, all of these things make it easier for me to live a healthier life. And, um, and additionally, too, you know, I, I'm not exposed to a lot of the sort of social stresses that we, that we know are negatively correlated with health. And this is disease is hitting all of those in much greater ways. So we shouldn't even be thinking about bouncing back. We should be taking this as, an, as, a, as a wake up call that the problems in our, in our system arrangements should have been dealt with a long time ago and are, we're reaping the, 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 the bad harvest that we have sowed. And I just, um, I, I just worry that, I can't believe I'm gonna say this. This is gonna sound so strange. Um, it, so the king at the time was Edward III. Uh, and generally speaking, Edward has a pretty good reputation. So he was very handsome. He was blonde. Uh, he had a beard, which was considered very sexy at the time. He was the model of medieval, of medieval kingship. And importantly too, his dad was a garbage king. So I'm going out on a limb there. Um, I'm making a statement. But his dad was not a particularly popular monarch, and he was actually removed through a revolt by sort of the, the barons, in particular his mom and his mom's um, lover. So Edward is often seen as kind of this restorer of, of sort of order and structure, and he very much believed in chivalry, even though chivalry was kind of dead by that point. And he's also the one of the kings who really popularizes English in the court. So, you know, shifts from French to English. So it's, he has a positive reputation. But we see his limitations as a leader in the, in the way that he responded to this. So the fact that they're passing laws, as I said, that say, you know, you can't ask for more money, that you can't uh, ask for, you know, even, even within the medieval mindset, the idea of a just price would allow you to say, well, you know, we have lost people. We need to increase the price of this to maintain our current standards. So it's not that it's economically inconsistent, but he sort of leans into the established way of doing things down to, as I said, sort of passing a law that said, you have to clean up your front stoop. If grandpa is dead on the front stoop, that's on you. Um, which just is, I mean, from a modern perspective, that's terrible, but it highlights the fact that he is, has it had an evil mindset and was unopen to the consequences of the world around him. So I really do think that Edward actually bears some of the brunt of the, of the blame for what happened to his grandson, Richard II, uh, during the Peasants' Revolt, because a lot of the consequences of the decisions he makes are the ones that Richard has to deal with. And so I think we are now, thankfully, no longer in the medieval period. We have representative government, and we get the government we deserve. So if we ask nothing of our government other than to go back to a set of arrangements that has been exposed now unambiguously as deeply problematic, then that's on us. And we will likely find ourselves, we have already found ourselves in similar problems. So for instance, um, Alberta has, I think, 
three of the top 10 most expensive natural disasters in Canadian history, the fire, the flood, and the, um, the hailstorm that happened a few months ago. And we are likely going to face more of those. And so if we don't think about how we bounce forward in this opportunity where we are, we're actually being given a moment to bounce forward, that there is so much pressure on us to think about this. There's no sort of distraction. There's no hockey games we have to worry about. There's no sort of Olympics that we're focused on. We have no control over the price of oil right now. Then I really worry that we're not, we don't have the skills in government to achieve that kind of resilience that will bounce forward. And instead, maybe may, we may be reaping this bad harvest for a generation. I think what's interesting too, like you said, that there's nothing to distract us. So I feel that more folks are realizing what this point in time can be, which is really exciting. And hopefully that leads to something that will bounce forward. But I do definitely think that uh, more people who wouldn't um, notice the issues going on in our society and seeing the fractures that are very evident throughout this COVID time, the folks that don't normally see that, I think are starting to see it, which is hopeful. Hopefully, oh, yeah. The, the worst part is actually, in my mind, I think this is a fantastic opportunity. The number of times I've, I've had like a former student or something reach out to me and be like, hey, you know that thing you talked about? Yeah, it's happening, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> yeah, or, or, or the quality of some of the final papers I've been getting since the COVID thing started, where students have been like, so like think about social innovation and COVID. They're like, oh, it's, it's, it is this amazing opportunity. I just, it's, I'm just so disappointed by how limited some people sort of thinking is mm -hmm. you know and 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 the worst part is we're not that far away from generations that did amazing things um you know they went to the moon that's crazy i mean it was a huge expenditure of time and effort <laughs> but like they did it you know um and even things that have more problematic heritages like the railroad that's that's not that old it's 140 years old mm -hmm. uh and so and yes, there were a lot of issues. Of course there were. Um, it was a different time. History is a, is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Mm -hmm. But just because things are difficult, they were difficult then, they were difficult for different reasons. But this, it's just this incredible limitation. It's like, it's like people are fighting almost these political level wars over an inch of territory. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we need to, we need to think bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I loved how at the beginning you were talking about when the Black Death was happening and the way that they were talking about it then is drastically different than the way we talk about it now. And I have often thought like 40 years from now, how are people going to refer to the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, is it going to be made into this something that it's not, Bad you know? Movie. Yeah, I don't know. Oh my goodness. But yeah, I've definitely thought about that. How are, A, how are kids going to learn about it in history? Like, what are people going to talk about it? And just generally, like, what will people who've lived through it how will they talk about it in 30 40 plus years i'm curious so when i was a kid um it was very popular to have an assignment where you had to interview somebody who lived through the 60s mm -hmm. um so the, sort of the social narrative of what the 60s was really like which really has which really is actually refers to kind of an 18 month period <laughs> between like 69 and 70 uh but um but that was sort of a big thing and the problem is that i had one grandparent and my grandparent was um my, my my parents were like, they were teens, and my, my dad was 18, I think, in 1970, and my mom was, was 14, and my mom was super square, so like, there was no interesting story there, so I always hated that assignment, so it was just like, because my grandma was, my grandma was a, was a real estate agent who had, who was, who was a widow during that time period, so it wasn't a happy time for her to talk about, 
But I do wonder if you're going to see a similar sort of like, tell us about what life was like under COVID. Um, I think we will. I, yeah. I, I can still, I can tell you everything about what happened to me on, on 9-11. Yeah. So it's probably going to be similar to that, except for it's not as quite as discreet, you know, right. same way that my mom can tell you exactly what happened the day that Kennedy was shot, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This is just more spread out. It'll be like people who used to be able to talk about like the roaring twenties or like the dirty thirties, you know, stuff like that. So I think it'll be similar because it's more spread out, but yeah. Very Let's interesting. See. Let's hope. So to bring it back, what do you think about, would we know if the world is collapsing around us? Do you think the world is collapsing around us right now? Potentially, yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a... It's hard to say this when some people have died. Um, I think some systems arrangements may be collapsing. I think um, one of the interesting things is because this is happening in real time and it's happening at the same time, um, unlike the Black Death was kind of slowly made its way across Europe. And of course, people didn't have the kind of access to information that we have now. Um, you're actually being able to compare things really effectively. So for instance, you've probably seen the meme going around about the countries run by women versus countries run by blowhards. Um, but that's, that is actually verifiable. I mean, they're not, it's not that they're perfect and the other ones are terrible, but they are definitely having better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And that's something to take into account. Um, so it's possible, yeah, the world is collapsing all around us. I don't think we're actually very good judges of that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think, especially looking at the Black Death information, um, you know, there's always these kind of famous examples where someone's literally writing a sentence and then dies halfway through the sentence. Um, those are relatively few and far between. What we tend to see is that people overestimate how much the world is changing. And then when it doesn't fully change, they kind of snap back. And that's where we start to see the consequences of not taking into account the changes that are happening. Um, but I do think it's possible. I mean, the conversations that I've been involved in, even at my little tiny level, have been kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. The next, it'll be the next 18 to 24 months, I think it'll be really critical for us to know whether or not we're going to bounce forward or bounce back. Mm -hmm. And it may not be even, you know, um, New Zealand may bounce one way, Australia may bounce the other way. Um, we may, oh, I hope we don't follow the states. Yeah, I said that more in, in, in an effort to, 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 to affection for my American cousins, you know, mm -hmm. American neighbors. But uh, it's, you know, it's, it's possible we'll see those divergent outcomes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I do actually think that I think that some some of the questions on the table at least suggest that the Overton window has shifted. So the talk about defunding the police is a really fascinating one. Um, it's it's ambiguous, which has its pluses and minuses um, depending on what your what your goal is. If your goal is effective policy debate, it's it's different than if your goal is social change. Um, but the fact that that's even on the table. Is, is interesting and it's forcing some people to justify some decisions that we treated as as obvious normal or sort of not decisions they were just how things are and that process alone can actually be very generative um so when you actually start to say like but why do we do that or but why are we tolerant of that many people dying in custody mm -hmm. that's been a big subject of conversation here because um so many people who die in custody in Canada are people experiencing mental health issues. And, and, and um, they also do often happen to be people of color or indigenous people, but mental health issues uh, seem to be something that is common in a lot of these negative outcomes. And 
I don't think that we are as tolerant of people having a mental health breakdown dying as we might've been 20 years ago. So sometimes making the, what seems, what seems obvious, evident, or just the way things are making it obvious that that actually is a choice mm -hmm. and that there is path dependency that makes it hard to change, but that there it is changeable can actually be quite generative. Mm -hmm. And we tend to see when one really transformative innovation gets introduced, it opens the space for more transformative innovations. So, I mean, if, if you ask me on a good day, I would tell you, I think this is, this, this could be one of those periods. This could be like the second world war where we see this big window of opportunity and tons of terrible things pass through, but then also some really amazing things pass through. And those amazing things make other conversations easier and, and, and help in some ways and push us onto a new path. And that's possible. It's very possible. Mm -hmm. It's just, it sucks in the middle. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Yeah. At the end, you can look back at the silver linings of it, but during it's yeah. more difficult, I suppose. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I actually suspect that in, I suspect that in a few months, once things kind of go back to normal, there'll be a lot of people who will sort of rue the loss of this and will sort of say like, oh, why didn't I do more? Why didn't I do this? Yeah. I think that's partially because we have a very performative approach to things. So like you have to perform how busy you are and then you have to perform how like you know, how guilty you feel. That's a way of sort of indicating again that you're so busy that you can't do the thing that you want to do. It's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I, if I hear, like, it, honestly, it's like, it's like the old joke. It's like people, people who say they're classy often are. It's like people who say they're busy, you know? Um, yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It, it'll be interesting. There, there's no reason why outside of human frailty and a lack of imagination that we can't sort of learn from this. The question is, will we? Not if it's possible, but is it probable? That's a very great way to end it. <laughs> <laughs> that was just awesome. As usual, I always leave having learned something new about history and feeling inspired from a conversation with you. for tuning in to this episode of Pause. In the spirit of reconciliation, we'd like to feature land acknowledgements recorded by students of the Virtual School Project, a cohort of folks building a new education model that incorporates Indigenous ways of knowing and creates new pathways to meet the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. Here on Treaty 6 territory, we have so many rich cultural groups. The Cree, the Soto, the Blackfoot, the Dene, the Métis, and the Nakota Sioux. These are the ones that we should be recognizing by name. Each of these groups have similarities and differences. All of them have rich and unique cultures, and all of them deserve our respect as well as our action. It is our duty to help heal the harmful effects of colonialism on these nations. All of these nations deserve better treaty partners. The land is the other important part of the acknowledgement. It is important to recognize that she gives you everything. She is the reason you are alive. She is the reason you breathe. The land is powerful beyond human comprehension. Most of us don't even come close to understanding the relationship we have with the land. And we've been taking her for granted. It's all we seem to know how to do. So we need to find other ways of knowing. A land acknowledgement should encourage you to be grateful for the life you were given and are given at the start of each day when the sun rises. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us out by sharing it with a friend and rating us on your favorite listening platform. 
We'd also love to feature your big question on a future episode. For information on how to be a guest on the show, please visit absconnect.ca and navigate to our Get Involved page. We'd like to thank our funding partner, the Suncor Energy Foundation, producer and editor Elise Martinowski of Absi Connect, and theme music creator Eileen Aurora. I'm Babs Weber, and thanks for pausing with us. Mm-hmm.